You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. Listen, I, I've been around preaching and preachers for a long time, and I can tell you there's some ornery ones out there. And then there are some who are just flat awesome, and Hosey's in the latter category, I'll tell you right now. He is a great encourager to me, and I always like him here because he amens real good. So, you know, he's discipled many of you, but that's one thing I think some of you missed, okay, is on the amener uh, side of the discipleship equation, but anyway... I don't know if this is an amen or an oh me type of sermon, but we're going to find out real quick. And I'm going to ask you, if you will, to stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's Word. And I'm going to read to you one of the most provocative four verses, maybe, in all the Bible. And I want you to know that as we shake things up this morning, I pray it's the Holy Spirit doing it and not me. But I want you to listen well because I think the church today, this church in particular has the potential to change the world in the name of Jesus, but we're going to have to get rattled before we can have revival. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And I want to candidly speak with you this morning on the topic of when faith is no good. Because my hope and prayer is, is what we have is good and soul-shaking and life-altering. Let's pray. God, we pray that we will avoid the pitfalls that are pointed out by Brother James. And we ask, God, that we will embrace your gospel and our calling today. And where we are deficient, Lord, open our eyes and then open our mouths to sing praise and also to give witness to your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you are a fast Bible page turner, I'm going to have you turn back for just a moment. This weekend, as I was meditating on this passage, it occurred to me, I wrote this sermon, and I did not include these words of Jesus that I think are important for us today. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Now, our passage is in James. We're going to focus on that. But I think Jesus can launch us into this discussion, and I want you to see some of what we're talking about here today was the very same concerns that Jesus is trying to head off even in his ministry. In verse 13 of chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. As I began to think about what I was going to say to you, it is a shame, and I've been guilty of this too, that sometimes the way we preach as pastors and the way we lead as ministers, it seems like we're saying that Christianity is an easy thing, that all you got to do is these ABC things. But let me tell you, to follow Jesus with all you have and to give him your best, it is a hard thing to do in a fallen world. 
And we need to quit trying to make this so easy, like it's a broad path, like everybody can and will do it. Listen, I believe every single one of you can be filled with the Spirit, but the question is, why aren't we? The way is narrow. And what we have to do is believe that God is calling us to do more than be comfortable. To to find a church that we love is one thing, but to find a church where we can just blend in and be comfortable, that is not what God wants for us. God brought you here. I believe every single one of you who are a member at Ridgecrest Baptist Church and some of those that are here considering it, let me just say this. We don't want you to come and blend in in the crowd. We want you to shake things up. We want you to be a person filled with the Holy Spirit, moving us forward, challenging us all to give our very best to Jesus. Imagine someone claiming to be the best baseball player that ever lived, but they've never set foot on a baseball field. Imagine an actress claiming to be the best performer in Hollywood, but this actress has not one movie credit or Broadway credit to her credit. Now imagine someone claiming to follow Christ, claiming to be on the way to heaven, yet they barely worship and they almost never serve. Those first two illustrations are like, well, that's basic. A baseball player saying that they're great, but they never play the game. An actress saying that she's a great actress, but she never acts. And then a Christian saying they're a Christian, and yet they... Don't live the life of a Christian. We say many things that don't match up with with reality. And when we do that, when we say things that don't match our actions, what we are saying is no good. A braggart, we all can pick one of those out. Someone who's who's all talk but no walk. We, We know that makes us cringe, but I wonder how much that the Spirit cringes when we when we say things but we don't back them up. I want you to think about this. I think God is trying to reveal something to us. Spiritually speaking, the Bible makes it plain that we are saved by grace through faith. I want you to know that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is as applicable today as it is any day. But James will help us see that our works don't save us, but they do reveal the nature of our heart. And so today, as my, as my friend Pastor Johnny, who's preaching in a revival today, that's, not, that's why he's not down here uh, hollering at me, okay? He's preaching a revival today. He always asks me, he says, Jeremy, how's your heart? And I'm asking you that this morning. How is your heart? Is your faith good and profitable? If not, let's take a hard look at a hard passage. And what we're going to see first are two diagnostic questions. A doctor of the soul is going to ask good questions, and James certainly does here right off the bat. Then we're going to see in the next two verses an illustration of the problem that we all face. Then we'll finish with a sobering fact that I pray will open your heart and your mind. Let's begin with these key questions. Do you see them right there in verse 14? One, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, and you can underline that in your Bible if you're an underliner, says he has faith but does not have works. There we see a dichotomy between what is said and what is done. And then the second question really gets down to the point, can that, underline the word that, can that faith save him? We know that faith, true faith, saves us every time. But James is pointing out that kind of faith that is inconsistent and doesn't match up with what we do. Now, if you've been in Theology 101, whether it's a Sunday school class or even a college class or seminary class, 
There's always this talk about a tension between Paul and James, as if they're saying something different. But I'm going to tell you, they're saying the same thing. Paul is worried about those who think they can earn their way to the cross and and earn their way to salvation. So he's telling us that our works can't save us. But James is on the other side of this equation looking at the body of Christ, and he's saying, you know what? If you were saved by grace, start living like it. That makes perfect sense to me. Put yourself in the middle. Put Paul on one side and realize he's helping you see to get to Jesus, you can only go through Jesus. But on the other side of coming to know Jesus, James is saying over here, get to work. That's the whole theme of this series, get to work. It's all about your perspective. So listen to me. If you're here this morning and you're not sure about your eternal salvation, there is only one way to be saved, and that is through the blood of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you claim to be a follower of Christ, let me tell you, there's only one thing for you to be doing, and that is to serve Jesus. He is here, and he wants you to serve him with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is what that looks like. Oh, it is all too common, this absurdity in the church. People attend church. They believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They even believe in resurrection life, they say, yet they cheat on their taxes, are unfaithful to their spouses, and rarely tithe or serve in ministry. How can it be? That we say that we love Jesus and yet everything about our lives, when we step out of this room, when we get away from our Christian friends, looks like everybody else. That faith is no good. Doesn't have to be that way. If all the people who are on the church road tithed and volunteered, we never have budget issues and we never lack for volunteers in key ministries. And I'm going to tell you, Ridgecrest, we're doing really good, but most churches find that their greatest challenges are in the realm of budget and volunteer needs. We have the manpower and woman power. Actually, we need more woman power, I think. But with the manpower and the woman power, we just don't seem to have the willingness. We have the people, but we don't have the heart. We make excuses. We say, well, this season of our lives. Listen, I understand. I'm just now old enough. I've lived through a couple different seasons, and I know each season has its challenges. But in every season of your life, God is calling you to serve the church somehow, some way. You don't have to do it the same in every season, but in every season, serve the Lord with gladness. Oh, we make excuses. Many people profess Christ. Far fewer serve Christ. As I said earlier, James is a provocateur. James is stirring us up. He is making us squirm in our seats because we need to dig deep and ask ourselves, what are our motivations? Why is it common to agree with Christian doctrine but fail to live a Christian life? Dan Doriani is a professor in the St. Louis area. He's a great, great uh, theologian and great preacher, written several books. Uh, I got to meet him uh, during my doctoral phase. But anyway, uh, Dan tells a story about early in his ministry when he decided, and I guess in these days uh, that he did this, it was, uh, you know, pretty normal. He decided to go hitchhiking. Kids at home don't do that. I don't, I don't think that's a great way to go. But he decided just to do it on a whim. And he got in, a, in, in the cab of a truck with, with just a great guy. And this truck driver, and he, he began to share the gospel. And the truck driver was listening. And the man claimed to believe in Jesus. He confessed that he knew he was a sinner in need of grace. He believed that the church 
should be an important part of everybody's lives. And then he mentioned that though he was married, he didn't really want to give up all the girlfriends he had in various cities around the country. Later in life, Dan met a young lawyer who was just starting his practice. This man also said in the conversation that he believed Christ to be the Savior of the world. He believed that he was a sinner and that his personal sins could only be cured by the blood of Jesus. He believed in the church and its ministry in the world. But then he said, but you can't expect me to tithe. He said, I don't make much money now, but someday I plan to make big money, and there's no way I'd give 10% of my earnings to the church. Well, the funny thing is, is God doesn't ask Christians to give 10%. That's the floor, not the ceiling. This guy completely had it wrong. If God was on the throne of his life, 10% is where he would start. In fact, that's where he should have started as a young man to get ready for the time when he would be a big contributor to the kingdom of God. But notice, both of these men like the sound of Christianity. In fact, they could express Christian ideas rather easily. The problem was... For Dan, as he expresses this, and these are things that happened to him in the 80s and 90s, okay? So I'm picking illustrations from 20, 30 years ago. Nothing recent. Look at what it is. It's, it's people who can express the idea, but their actions and their lifestyles are not even remotely Christian. Oh, friends, it's not enough that you know the right things to say. The question is, is how is that changing your behavior? James makes it clear that works are not an added extra to faith, but an essential expression of it, as one scholar puts it. That is so true. And not all faith is equal. Now, let me just say, if you have true faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, we're all on the same ground there. But what people call faith, okay, what their definition of faith is, if it doesn't match up with Holy Scripture, then that faith is not the faith of Jesus Christ. And the church today needs to say, who are we? What is our faith? We're in the Bible Belt. We have a lot of professors, but not a lot of practitioners. Sadly, we are okay with whatever this status quo is. An occasional gift to the church. An occasional worship. You think it'll get better if you continue down that path? Infrequency adds up over time. A lack of passion gives the devil more angles on your heart. It's not going to get better until you let the Spirit get you right. We are saved by true faith, but it, is a, it provides a fruit that abides, according to John 15. Fake faith will not get you into a real heaven. Pastor Hosey's here today, and not too long ago I heard him preach a, a funeral sermon, and, and I heard this man preach about heaven like he believed it was real. It's real. And you know why it struck me, Pastor? Why I thought, because I thought, I don't know how many funeral sermons I've heard that don't even talk about heaven anymore. Listen. Heaven is real. It's where Jesus is. It is the place where we will spend forever worshiping him. Don't you want to go there? Listen, a fake faith won't get you there. Only faith in Christ. 
An old Puritan pastor said, nothing should satisfy me but what can save me. Listen, Jesus can save you. And he wants to save you today. He saves, he satisfies. And when we have him in our hearts, our lives are different. We need difference makers because we need people who have been made different by Jesus. And I'm praying that that is true today in your heart because wishful thinking is not enough to get you to heaven. But if we will allow the scriptures to guide us, then we will find ourselves in the presence of Jesus. And when we kneel before that cross and truly believe in him, then that faith will save us. When we confess our sins, when we're no longer depending on our righteousness, when we give it all to Jesus, that faith saves us. And I pray you have that faith. But let's look at James's illustration. It's rather simple. But I want you to notice a couple interesting idiosyncrasies of the text. Notice this. In James chapter 2, verse 15, you see a slight change in, in some of the wording that James uses. Up until this point, he's used the word brother as kind of brother and sister, but it's very interesting to me that here he deliberately says brother and sister. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Strange, strange, strange <laughs> that he has to say this. It seems so obvious, but powerful because it reminds us that many times the most basic elements of our faith we tend to ignore. The key point here is that false faith causes us to turn a blind eye to obvious need. When, when we are not right with God, it's not that we miss the details, we miss the whole picture. We're not able to see where God is at work. Listen, God is at work always and forever around you, but are you seeing it? You cannot see it with false faith. Notice the illustration is of brothers and sisters, and I believe that sisters are included here because in the early church, the, the women of any community were the most vulnerable. And I think James is reminding us again about pure religion. Remember that talk from James 1.27? I think this harkens back to that discussion in James 1.27 about the most vulnerable, the orphans and the widows. But in particular here, he talks about the plight of women in the first century Greco-Roman world. It was a very hard life. If you were widowed, you were most likely going to starve to death unless somebody came alongside of you. That's the world that was. And James is, is compassionate. He realizes that things like this are important and that the body of Christ has to step in and champion the cause of those who are most vulnerable. What is needed for the body is lacking. And the church must always be thinking about the practical needs of their community. Now that looks different in every church and in every community, but there is always something that we need. Now I want you to see something here. Notice it says, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Now I don't want to get into the grammar here, but that's the way the English Standard Version does that. It's kind of passive in the sense that it almost sounds like a prayer. So just imagine uh, you're really hungry, you're cold, it's a, it's a typical Missouri May and it's 30 degrees. And, and you're sitting there and you're cold and you're hungry. 
And the pastor or one of the pastors at Ridgecrest comes up and with a sanctimonious air prays this prayer. Be warm. Be filled. I'm out of here. That sounds ridiculous. But James says that this is what happens. This is how callous we get when we don't have real faith. Now, here's what's crazy. Greek grammar, which I don't anticipate any of you getting your Greek grammar out this afternoon. But that, that passive idea can also be middle voice. And so it, it becomes even worse if this is the translation. Because then, if, if we go this direction in translation, it would be more like this. Go find something to make yourself warm. Go feed yourself. When there is obvious need around us, and we don't act like we care, either we sound sanctimonious, like a prayer that doesn't mean anything, or we just are flat-out callous, and we tell people to mind their own business. Now, church, I hope you're hearing me. I hope that just really, like, man, that is so odious. That's so wrong. Yes, it is. James is trying to help you see that when you are not with Christ, you can get yourself in a lot of spiritual trouble. This is no good faith is what it is. If your heart is callous toward those in need, then your heart is not filled with Christ. We are called to aggressively care for one another. Now let me say this to you. I've been around Baptist churches for all my life, but I pastored them for about a quarter of a century or more. I still, I still don't got, got you, <laughs> Jose, you got me beat still. But I've been, around for, I've been around the block for a while. And I've seen energy. I've even seen some aggression. Can you believe that in a Baptist church? I've seen some aggression. But a lot of that energy and a lot of that aggression was aimed inward, not at lostness and not at hurting souls out in the community. Listen to me. I've seen people get worked up about all the wrong things. And here's what I'm saying. I feel like I really do. I, I feel like I've, I've won some kind of spiritual lottery. I don't know if that's heresy, but I love Ridgecrest. This is a great church. I hope you don't feel like that. I, I feel like this is something I'm seeing every day. This is just a warning, a prophetic warning from James, not from Jeremy. What I'm saying is this. We must guard our hearts. We need to look deep inside. And I'm going to tell you, the devil, when he starts working this up, we need to ask the question, is what I'm worked up about good for the kingdom or is it just something that I don't like or something that I want changed? We always have to ask ourselves, is my agitation, is my uh, weariness, whatever, is it all for the right reasons? And I fear that many times in the church today, we have energy and we have aggression, but it's aimed in the wrong direction. We need energy. We need people to volunteer. I'm telling you, I am more convinced today than ever that this is the army of God. This, this is the people of God, and we are going to see revival come. But we have got our marching orders, and it's time to march. We don't need to wait for Satan's attack. He's already attacking. The greatest generals don't wait for the attack. They move and get victory. Let's be on the march Let's be ready. Let's not be callous. Oh, friends, we can do this. The stomachs of the hungry will never be filled with well-meaning Christian words. A naked body will never be covered by well wishes. The illustration seems absurd. But how often do we look right through people who are in need? How many times have we failed to care for one another as we ought? 
James uses an extreme situation here. In rhetoric, we call it hyperbole, like going over the top. It's over the top because sometimes, friends, we're just just sinful. And I don't know if this hits you. If it does, fine. If it doesn't, fine. But I want you to know that we we have to be a people who, who love to share the gospel, but we have to be compassionate. What we're going to do with our James 127 Defenders Ministry We are looking for ways to aggressively go out into this world and attack whatever satanic oppression is there, whatever physical need is there. We want to be word and deed on fire for Jesus. The great English pastor Charles Spurgeon once quipped, if you want to give a hungry man a tract, wrap it up in a sandwich. That's really interesting language, isn't it? It's kind of backwards in some ways, but I just love it. Charles Spurgeon was the Prince of Baptist Preacher, so whatever he said had to be right. But you understand what he's saying, right? You can give someone a tract. You can say the Romans road to perfection. But if people don't sense that you love them body and soul, you're missing out. Let's be all in because every single person you come in contact with is a person in need of Christ. The sobering fact is in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The reformers had this saying. I don't know who said it first, but faith alone justifies, but not faith that is alone. Friends, your faith is what saves you. But as you live out a life of faith, then the world begins to change. Notice that last word in our text, at least in my translation, is dead. Dead. This kind of points us back to, the, the well, forward to chapter 2, verse 26. James says, therefore, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, I want you to realize how sobering this fact is indeed. The word dead here doesn't imply just inoperative in some outward sense, but it means dead, dead, dead. We cannot afford to have dead faith. We need to have a living gospel. Too often we come to the end of the sermon. We come to this time and we hear the scriptures and we hear the pastor say what he says. And our conviction is is not all that great. We assume that it was for somebody else. I often tell people it just breaks my heart that the people who seem the most convicted about a sermon like this are the ones that are already actively involved and have tender consciences and tender spirits. But we have to preach like this. Because the only way to tenderize you is to let the Word of God, not me, but let the Word of God pound on you a little bit. Let me tell you why a lot of churches are weak. Because the leaders of those churches are not willing to let the Word of God do what the Word of God does, which is convict. I I hope you hear me today. I I, I told the prayer group that gathered with me, I don't don't want to come across angry or mean or mad or anything else. Because I believe that what I'm saying to you today is a life-changing opportunity for every one of you. I'm excited to preach this word to you because I believe it can change you and turn the trajectory of your life heavenward. I believe that God wants to radically reform you and put your priorities in another place. So here's what I want you to think about as we leave here. My dad is uh, uh, a man I love and appreciate. He'll watch this later and he'll chuckle, I hope. Um, I can remember the first time I ever heard the phrase, C's make degrees. I think he's the one who said it. Now, that's kind of funny 
because I don't know if anybody knows me at all, knows that's not my game plan usually. Uh, so dad and I are a little different in that way. I think he did well in school, but uh, I've heard several people say that. And honestly, you know, sometimes we, we want to excel. Sometimes we just want to survive and get through. Let me just ask you this question. That C's make degrees mentality. What's that look like in the church? How is it that we can settle for average or worse? Isn't Jesus worth more? I want you to do this, not so much just today, but in the days to come. I want you to earnestly ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart and give you a grade. How are you doing? How is your worship, your private devotion, and your service of Christ? How are you doing? Now look, someone else on the outside can give you an opinion, but this is really more about the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. If you are in a seize make degrees mode, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will haunt you all week and not let you rest until you get the grade and then say, you know what, we're not even at midterm yet. (laughs) I don't care how old you are, you're not at midterm yet. There's plenty of time to turn this thing around. There's plenty of time to be the person God wants you to be. Stop making excuses. Stop living a life of lesser faith, but dream the dream that God has for you and become the man, the woman that turns the world upside down for Jesus. Be that person who is radical in their faith and willing to reorder their lives in every way for the cause of Christ. How many of us profess Jesus as Lord but live to serve the idols of our own heart? If you're serving those idols, let's chop them up today at the altar. Let's put them down because Jesus is better. Oh, if you don't have that faith that saves, please come to Jesus right now. Heavenly Father, in this moment I ask for you to move in this room. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit ridgecrestbaptist.org.